0: Dino is a free and open source JavaScript runtime built on Google's V8 engine, Rust, and Tokyo. The project was announced by Ryan Dahl in 2018 with the goal of addressing shortcomings of Node.js, which Ryan also created. Since then, the Dino project has grown tremendously in popularity, and they recently announced Dino KV, which is a database built into Dino. Luca Casinato is a software engineer on the Dino project and joins the show to talk about Dino's design, its new database, and the future of the JavaScript ecosystem. This episode is hosted by Josh Goldberg, an independent full-time open-source developer. Josh works on projects in the TypeScript ecosystem, most notably TypeScript ES Slint, the tooling that enables ESLint and Prettier to run on TypeScript code. Josh is also the author of the O'Reilly Learning TypeScript book, a Microsoft MVP for Developer Technologies, and a live code streamer on Twitch. Find Josh on Bluesky, Mastodon, Twitter, Twitch, YouTube, and .com as Joshua K Goldberg.
1: Luca, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. How's it going? Hey, hey! thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
2: Yeah, sure. I'm Luca. I'm a software engineer at the Dino company. I work mostly on Dino and various projects related to Dino. I've been doing software engineering for about five years now, mostly working in Rust, doing a bit of JavaScript and TypeScript. Well, actually, a lot of JavaScript and TypeScript, considering I'm working on Dino. Yeah, I do some spec work in... The WhatWig, so that's the standards group that standardizes the HTML spec and fetch and streams and all that kind of stuff. And also I'm a delegate at TC39 working on the JavaScript language there. Yeah.
1: How did you get into doing so much with the JavaScript language in just a few half-decade years?
2: Yeah, I don't know. We sort of needed somebody at Dino to do spec stuff. And I don't know, we were a team of four people. And I don't know, I decided I was going to do it. So there was not much thought that went with that. <laughs> just somebody had to do it. It's amazing how
1: sometimes people who are talented and know what they're doing, such as yourself, happen to be in this great place. It's this beautiful mixture of, I know what I'm doing, and I'm well positioned, and you can make a big impact in the world around you. Yeah, thanks. So what's been it like working at Dino? How would you describe the team?
2: Yeah, we've grown a lot over the last couple years now. I've been with the company for, yeah, I guess three years. Did some open source work on Dino, like unpaid previous before then. Yeah, when I started out, I was the second employee to join. We were a team of four people, Ryan, Burt, our two co-founders, and, and Bartek and me. And now we're up to a team of, I think, 25, maybe 30. And yeah, we, we have, scope has increased drastically, right? We're not just a JavaScript runtime anymore. We have a built-in database. We are a JavaScript hosting company. And like, I don't know, we power things like Netlify Edge functions, which people get very upset when they go down. So we have to make sure they don't go down. And yeah, responsibilities have grown a lot over the last couple of years. And yeah, super excited about that.
1: Do you ever miss the time when you had a few fewer responsibilities?
2: Yeah, sometimes. There was a sort of time maybe a year ago when things were we were much more in a crunch. We were just like starting to grow pretty quickly. And that meant that like we really didn't have enough people for the work we were trying to do. And yeah like that was painful because that means you constantly have to do things you don't really want to be doing because like there's nobody else there to do them. But at this point I get to work on stuff that I really want to work on all the time. And I don't know, we're launching super awesome things every week. We just launched a bunch of new KV features and just about to launch cron jobs on deploy. We just launched like Jupiter integration for the CLI a couple of weeks ago, like really all over the place, super exciting things that like make it easier for people to use yeah, to program. And I don't know. I really enjoy that. I I really like writing things and then like writing about the things or talking about the things to people and then seeing them being used and yeah, just seeing how excited people are about them. I don't know. It just feels like you're making an impact somewhere and that's a cool feeling.
1: For our non-visual listeners, you have a sparkle in your eyes right now, which I love to see. You seem to derive (laughs) a lot of joy from the idea of helping people develop. Is that right?
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's great. Like, it's sort of like a multiplier, right? When you build developer tooling, you're not just building software for sort of an end user, where there's one person there that uses that. But really, you're making tooling that lets other people build really cool experiences for their customers. And if you do it well, then you can really help accelerate people like turning their visions or ideas into something tangible that people can sort of interact with. And yeah, just... Seeing the results of that, like seeing what people have built with Dino, just so fun. Like opening Twitter in the morning and seeing like things that you're tagged in or like even sometimes when people complain about things about Dino, like they're complaining about I'm using Dino in this project. And then the first sentence is, yeah, I'm using Dino in this and this project. And you look at the projects like super cool project. And the second sentence is, but this thing just stopped randomly working. And then you're sort of grounded back in reality, but it's still really fun.
1: There's an old joke template. You're the worst ex I've ever seen from the Captain Jack Sparrow quote, but I, you have heard me or have seen me. Yeah. So <laughs> let's talk about those things you mentioned, KV, Cronon Deploy, and Jupyter. Let's go through them in order. What is KV from the Dino perspective and what are you up to?
2: Sure. Yeah. So let me start slightly somewhere else, which is, let me give you a bit of an introduction about Dino for the people who aren't familiar. So Dino is a new JavaScript runtime that was originally created by the same guy that wrote Node, Reindahl, to sort of fix a lot of the shortcomings in Node. And one of the big shortcomings that we found was Node doesn't really have a lot of tooling built in. So in Node, if you want to set up a new project, there's a lot of configuration you have to do and a lot of tooling you have to install to just get started, right? You need to set up a formatter and a linter and TypeScript and probably ES Build or SWC if you don't want to wait 30 seconds for TypeScript to emit your files. And then you need to like configure your library for publishing to And PM, and that's a bunch of work. And there's just like a bunch of stuff that you have to do before you can even get started writing any code. So one of our sort of design principles is to try to remove this boilerplate and make it super easy to get started. And a couple, yeah, maybe at the start of this year, we started expanding this beyond just sort of developer tooling in the sense of things that like you may use during development time. So linters and formatters and our language server and testing frameworks, that kind of stuff. And we started working on a database that is built directly into Dino. Because one of the things that we saw people struggle with a lot was sort of setting up a database for your application. This takes a lot of time. You have to go find somewhere to host it, and then you have to configure it all. And then often doesn't really integrate very well into the runtime. Like you have to, if you're using an SQL database, have to figure out how to get from the data that's in your tables, which is sort of not JavaScript data types, but are sort of, I don't know, maybe Postgres data types where Postgres doesn't have a type to represent a JavaScript big end, for example, or a JavaScript string. And that sounds kind of weird because yes, obviously Postgres has a string type, but Postgres's string type is actually UTF-8 and not WTF-16, which is what JavaScript uses, which means that you get into all of these weird edge cases where you want to write something into your database. And then it turns out you can't because you have to have a character in there that like, is not representable in UTF-8. And then you have to deal with edge cases, and it's not fun. And then there's obviously libraries that let you deal with this, like ORMs, but yeah. So what we wanted to do is build a database that's like directly built in and can make use of all of the primitives of JavaScript and really lets you store JavaScript objects. So we did. We built Dino KV, which is a key-value store. It's atomic, has strong consistency, which is it has asset compliance, just like many of the SQL databases it's globally replicated and scalable through our dino deploy platform and yeah it's, it's built directly into dino so you can get started with just you just have to run dino.openkv in your application it's just a function you call and then you have a database and we've seen really positive feedback on that so that's dino kv sorry for the long-winded explanation <laughs> no no this is great i love it i forgot to ask
1: what dino is so thank you for that introduction but this KV, it's built for, you know, did you build it from the ground up? A new database is like, at what level is it your code versus powered by other code?
2: Sure, sure, sure. That's a great question. So yes, we built a lot of our own stuff. We did not build our own persistence layer. And this is kind of, when you're talking about databases, there's many different layers that you can talk about, right? So there's the sort of layer that takes your data and can atomically commit it to disk. And this is yeah usually called the storage layer. And we did not build that in the CLI. We use SQLite for this. and in Our distributed hosting platform Dino Deploy, we use FoundationDB, which is the same database that it's developed by Apple. It's the same database that powers iCloud. But then on top of this, there's a bunch of systems both in the CLI and in Deploy to make it possible to store JavaScript values inside this database and make it like give you this nice JavaScript API. So yeah, it's sort of a mix of existing technologies for things that are really difficult to get right and that somebody else can do much better job of. Yeah, persistence. And then things that we're really good at. We did those ourselves.
1: What happens if I pass some wild and wacky JavaScript object like a proxy and a function and a getter and a promise all up in there?
2: How does that supported by the database? Yeah. So we support any value that you can pass between workers, so any value that's structured clonable. So actually, in a proxy, we wouldn't serialize the proxy itself, but we would serialize the sort of values that the proxy points to or the the value that the proxy is proxying. And we don't allow you to serialize functions. But, for example, you can serialize recursive objects. Uh, You can serialize arrays that contain objects that contain arrays that maybe point back to the original array or object, right? So we support these circular sort of structures we support serializing JavaScript date objects, uint8 arrays, any of the typed array views, array buffers, big ints, booleans, numbers, the whole set of primitives, wrapper objects. So, like, there's like primitives all have wrapper objects that are sort of objects rather than primitives. Maybe this is getting into too much detail, but yeah, there's a bunch of weird edge case stuff that we support, but we don't support storing functions or proxies specifically. Got it.
1: I'm curious, why is it that functions can't be structured cloned?
2: That's a great question. So this actually has something to do with that in JavaScript, functions are all closures, which means that any function that you have can possibly or actually always does close over some other objects. I mean, In the case of a function that you define at the top level, it closes at least over the global scope. And actually, you can observe this because if you define some top level variables in a script and then create a function in that script, and then you pass a reference of that function to a different script, and then you evaluate that function there, then it's not going to use any variables defined in the script where you called the function, but rather in the script that it was defined in because it closes over variables. And when you close over variables, you... If you want to pass this to a different worker, you can't take the function in isolation and pass it to a different worker because the function is not a pure function from input state to output state because it can possibly close over other things, right? And languages that allow you to move functions across threads usually only allow you to do this for functions that do not close over state that is local to the thread. And because in JavaScript, you can't share any state across, like you can't share JavaScript objects across threads. You can only clone them because functions close over things, they inherently are also bound to a thread. So you can't pass them across workers. So in Rust, for example, you can only pass a function across threads if it doesn't close over any data that is thread local. So most functions in JavaScript are not closures, but they're sort of real functions that always have like an input and an output, and they can't close over any top-level variables. So those are really just like pure computation, and pure computation is easy to pass. But the way you have to think of this is that In JavaScript, you can get sort of the string of a function by calling a function.toString. And if you could pass that function.toString over to a different thread and then use the new function constructor to construct a function from that string, and then the function would still work, then you could theoretically, maybe we could support uh, structured cloning that. But the problem is the second you import something, like when you have an import statement at the top of your file and you use something that you imported, inside of that function, this two-string trick doesn't work anymore because now it's going to be referring to some binding which is not present in the worker because you didn't import a value in the worker. So, yeah, closures. <laughs> Love it. And
1: you've used this phrase a few times now, structured clone. This is in reference to the standard structured clone
2: algorithm, API, in JavaScript? Yeah, yeah. So the structured clone algorithm, that's the algorithm that defines what values can be passed across workers. Mm -hmm. There's a structured clone function since maybe last year that you can use to just clone objects.
1: Everything except functions and similar. If you were to have done this, say, (laughs) five years ago, would you have had to Mm reimplement that function from scratch, that structured clone API?
2: Maybe. So internally, we, like, DinoKV is really baked into the runtime, so we aren't limited to sort of the APIs that we have access to in JavaScript, but we sort of have privileged access to the underlying engine. So V8 exposes the structured clone algorithm. So the algorithm to copy values or, or to serialize them. And it has done much before the structured clone function was available on the global because, yeah, you needed this to implement workers, right? So even if the structured clone function didn't exist in global scope, we would have still been able to implement this. Mm, got it. And maybe we would have had to implement slightly more, but
1: still. So that means that... You're using Dino KV with Dino. It's not something that could be extracted out and used in, say, Bun or Node themselves?
2: Yeah, so that's right. You definitely can't use it in Bun. There's a user that has created a module called KV Connect Kit that allows you to also use this in Node. And actually, if you're using it in Node, it implements the sort of serialization algorithm in user land in JavaScript. And actually, we're working with this user right now to sort of Get the documentation up to par and like integrate this into our npm namespace so we can just uh, so we would publish that KV module and then you'll be able to use you know KV on, on node too. But that's not quite ready yet. Hmm.
1: That's really lovely that instead of trying to shut down using with node, you're embracing the open source aspect of it and actually working with the person.
2: Yeah, totally. It's a super cool project, so why not? Yeah. All right,
1: let's move on. There were three points you brought up as recent features. KV, cron and deploy, and Jupyter. What is
2: cron and deploy? Yeah, so Deploy is our serverless hosting platform for Dino. It can run sort of arbitrary JavaScript, and it's globally distributed, and it deploys in less than a second. You can deploy directly from GitHub, blah, 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 many, many features. (laughs) But so far, the only way you've been able to invoke JavaScript is synchronously through HTTP requests. So when you get an HTTP request, we would sort of run your JavaScript and then return whatever you return back to the user. And this doesn't really work for all use cases. Like sometimes you want to just schedule some work to happen in the background, especially with, you know, KV, you may, I don't know, want to go look at all of the users you have at midnight and like send them an email if they've gone over some quota or something. And we now have, yeah, cron job support, or it's coming very soon, actually. It's landed in the CLI and unstable, but it's coming very soon to deploy where you can sort of give it a function and it'll invoke that function on some schedule that you passed
1: how similar is this to Cron and other languages or text stacks like PHP, Apache style?
2: Yeah, it's actually pretty similar. One of the nice things about Deploy is that the way we implement this, we don't actually have to keep your JavaScript running while we're waiting for the Cron job to trigger. And you don't have to configure anything in like a CronTab file or anything. It's it's just a JavaScript API. So you can just call Dino.cron, use normal Cron syntax that you would also use with, I don't know, PHP or Apache or CronTab. And just pass us a function and we'll call you back on that function whenever it's time. And we don't have to keep running your JavaScript, so it's, it's really cheap. We're actually thinking, so right now we support only the cron syntax, so that's like the string that has stars and numbers with spaces in between. But we're actually thinking about a JavaScript API. I forget who asked me this, but somebody asked me this on Mastodon recently, if we couldn't also just have like a JavaScript object sort of shape for this. And I thought, yeah, that obviously makes sense. Like most of the people using Dino are JavaScript developers who don't care about cron syntax. They only want to specify, I want to run this every four hours. And yeah, you can obviously express that in sort of a JavaScript object or a builder pattern where you call a function that you specify that you want to call it every four hours. So we're going to do that too.
1: This seems like it's, although a great feature, much less technically intense than the KV feature that you just described. Is there a reason why you're excited about both
2: of these? Yeah. Yeah. So, yes, it's less technically complex, but also, in some senses, it's not. So, on Deploy, for example, we can't run your JavaScript. So, Deploy has a free tier where you can deploy your code, and for most projects, you'll be able to run them completely for free. And this is possible because we have the ability to only run your JavaScript when you're actually getting requests rather than having to run it continuously. And if you think about like a simple way that you would write this cron system is that it's just a javascript function that parses the cron string determines when the next time is that it needs to be called and then calls set timeout right but the problem with this is that if you do this you have to keep the javascript running the entire time that you're waiting for the set timeout you can't shut down the javascript in between and then restart it later because you would lose that set timeout then so the way this works in deploy is that we sort of have to analyze your code up front and figure out what cron jobs you actually want to be listening for and then externally we can start up your code whenever it's getting close to having to run a cron job then let you run the cron job and then when you're done with the cron job we shut down your javascript again and this means we're not wasting a bunch of cpu cycles doing nothing right and we can offer this free service without users having to pay for many of their applications do
1: you think that there might be a future where one could describe the when i want to run next logic with a function or something more advanced than just an object or string
2: yeah, actually, that's not a bad idea. We haven't really thought about it. But yeah, the thing is, you can already do this in some sense by just scheduling more frequently than you actually want to run. Like if you want to run every two hours and then every three hours and then every two hours again, like sort of on a alternating cadence, then what you could do is you could run actually every hour and then every hour you check whether it's either a multiple of that two or, th- or three hours and then execute whatever code you want. But yeah, no, we haven't really thought about doing that. It's it's definitely possible. We could do it. We actually have a different product that probably is better suited for that. So Dino KV also has queues built in, which are like a way for you to enqueue some data into the database and then have a function that is invoked to sort of process these queue items, which allows you to do like async background processing or yeah. If you want to send an email, for example, you don't want to do that directly from your HTTP handler, you can instead put something in the queue and then have the queue send that email soon later. And actually, we allow you to schedule queue items for in, in the future. So if you don't want to invoke them immediately, but you want to actually in queue an email to run, I don't know, say in 30 minutes, you can say, don't deliver this queue message until this time has passed. So you can, you can sort of implement your own like poor man's cron system on top of this queue system where you can sort of listen to one queue item and then at the end of that schedule another queue item to happen, I don't know, maybe three hours later.
1: That's really interesting. Did you see users previous to the actual cron support using the queues as a sort of cron? Is that part of how you determined to yeah. write the queue feature or the cron feature?
2: Yeah, yeah. It was actually one of the original reasons we did queues first, because we thought it was going to be more powerful, because people could like sort of emulate cron on top of them. And actually, somebody wrote a little userland module that sort of implements this cron syntax on top of the scheduled queues, which I thought was pretty funny. But there's some problems with it because if you ever missed a delivery of one of these queue messages, your front schedule sort of gets broken because you're always relying on the fact that the last delivery schedules the next one. And if for whatever reason, there's something that happens that you miss a delivery, usually this doesn't happen because we retry deliveries, but I don't know. If your handler throws like five times in a row, you're out of luck and your front has stopped working. So... Yeah, (laughs) first class system is better.
1: Yeah, I can see users building cruft on top of this of, oh, why don't we set timeouts and then handle them if something failed and it gets complex, yeah. Let's move on to the final of the three new features you brought up, KV, Cron and Deploy, Jupyter. What is Jupyter?
2: Yeah, so Jupyter is a, I don't know, are you familiar with Jupyter Notebooks and Python at all? I have heard of them enough to know that I should ask you to define them for our listeners, please. Okay, So Jupyter Notebooks are a way for you to sort of interactively, they're like a really spruced up REPL, to be honest. They're a way for you to write a document that has interactive code in it. And people usually use this to do data science with. So what you could do is you could pull some data from a CSV, let's say, do some processing in line, you could have some like markdown blocks, and then you could have a code block, and that code block generates a table or generates a graph or something. And you can sort of define documents using code. And so far, uh, if you wanted to use Jupyter, you usually had to use Python, because Python is sort of the king of, of data science. But that's unfortunate, because, I don't know, the JavaScript ecosystem is much nicer than Python. I think Python, like, if you wants to use indentation for anything? Come on, people. Careful, <laughs> careful. So... Well, I don't know. I stand by my point. <laughs> and like, you want to have proper types. You want to be able to use TypeScript. We have really nice ways to do display using JSX. In JavaScript, Like I don't want to write some HTML templating using strings. Come on, it's not like, I don't know. Sure. I, Each I ecosystem PHP, has its pros
1: and cons. Sure. There are things that are easier yeah. in, in every one. Yeah. And if you're already in JavaScript or TypeScript, it can be quite a pain to have to switch over to Python. Sure.
2: Yeah. I stand by my point that JavaScript is better than Python, but anyway, <laughs> the idea is that yeah, you can now use Dino uh, to write JavaScript in your books, so you can do this data visualization using JavaScript. And I don't know, there's really great visualization libraries in JavaScript like D3, and yeah, other libraries that can output like SVG charts and things like that. We built for the browser originally, but yeah, they're really really useful for sort of these data science use cases too. And yeah, we made this super easy to use. It's just directly built into Dino. You just have to install Jupyter and um, it'll automatically pick up you know, if you have it installed. Um, and you can use that as your sort of thing to power the Jupyter notebooks. The Jupyter calls this kernels. And then you can write JavaScript. So what is a Jupyter kernel? A Jupyter kernel is the thing that actually executes the code that you write in your notebook. So if you write some Python in there, there's a Jupyter kernel called IPython, interactive Python, that will execute it. You write JavaScript in there use the Dino kernel. It's sort of like a language server on steroids. I don't know if you're familiar with what a language server is. It's the, the thing that powers your editor, sort of that can do, like gives you back the completion. So if your editor asks, if you, if you open a file in your editor and you want to like autocomplete some keyword or something or, or autocomplete an identifier, then the editor asks the language server uh, what it should display. And the language server does this for editors, and Jupyter kernels do this sort of for REPLs. It's a standard interface to do a Repl. Got it. So if I'm, let's say, running a Jupyter notebook
1: and I want to run Dino in a, some code block, then this Dino, pardon me, this Jupyter, mm-hmm. Jupyter with a Y, by the way, kernel would be able to. Could yeah. I have a, a notebook that has some kernels with Node, some with Dino, some with Python? I actually don't know. Maybe I see no reason why one would want that, but I'm, I'm imagining.
2: No, nope, I don't either. <laughs> great. <laughs> you should just always use
1: the JavaScript one. No. <laughs> Perfect. Problem solved. But great. Yes. So what is the big draw for spending the time to add Jupyter support with Dino? Like, why did your team prioritize this?
2: Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, Dino has like a bunch of built-in tooling for, for all kinds of things. And we really want Dino to be your like one-stop shop or your, your sort of toolbox that lets you do anything. If you're developing code, Dino should get you 90% there in all cases. And Dino has a built-in REPL, but I don't know. We were not really happy with it. REPLs are sort of so, I don't know, 1980s, right? You open a terminal and you don't get any code formatting in there. You maybe get syntax highlighting, but probably not. You have this terrible editor that you can't navigate around in. You definitely can't click around in it. And especially for people that are just getting started, this can be like a real challenge, right? Like not having a visual interface that can explain things to you as you're doing it is really difficult. There's no auto completions in there. There's no sort of type checking that goes on in there. And yeah, we really wanted to spruce up the REPL. And the Jupyter Notebooks was just a sort of obvious way to do that. Because yeah, it's been proven out in in the Python ecosystem that this is a really great way of sort of doing interactive things that you usually use a REPL for. It's like sort of the REPL of the 21st century.
1: There's a Trends now, X of the 21st century. We see companies like Warp, companies like Temporal doing, let's say, the terminal of this century or the scheduling of this century. Do you see Dino having its own X
2: of the century phrase? Ideally, we'd want to be the everything of the century, but I don't know. Even though I just said it, I think it's like a pretty vague thing, right? I think for rebels it's pretty clear because you can like see the improvement over sort of having a rebel with no syntax highlighting that you have to run in your terminal compared to something that has syntax highlighting and code completion and Whatever, right? It's the, it's the difference between using Text Editor or Notepad on Windows compared to using VS Code. Like, they're just completely different classes of, of systems, right? They're, they're not really comparable. And yeah, we'd like to offer that sort of experience, not just for REPLs, but for databases and for linters and reformatters and really everything we touch.
1: Sure. And for those who haven't tried it out, there is a linter and there is a formatter coming with Dino, right? There's Dino Lint, there's Dino Format.
2: Yeah. There's a test runner, there's a benchmarking framework. I could go on. Goes on Please do. <laughs> what else What else you got for us? We have like, you can, Dino Compile is a really fun feature. So you can write some code in Dino and run Dino Compile on it, and then it'll turn your JavaScript code into a single executable. And you may be familiar with this from maybe like Nexi or PKG in Node, but those have a really hard time working correctly for complex NPM packages. I'm not going to say that Dino Compile works perfectly for all packages, but I think we work a lot better than most of these do because we don't have to rely on bundling. We can do sort of very funny smart interesting runtime things that yeah, make this work pretty well. We have yeah, TS the type checker, uh, TypeScript is built directly into Dino so you don't have to separately install TSC. It's actually slightly faster than than TSC because of some again internal optimizations we can do because we're integrated all the way from sort of the JavaScript runtime. All the way to the API we expose, the way you import packages, the way we packages are downloaded, right? All the way to the editor. So we have a lot of uh, places where we can optimize things to, to make them work better together. Yeah, we have a bundler, I think. Oh yeah, documentation generator is a really fun one, also. So many people will write JS doc comments on their functions, right? To uh, give nice auto completions of VS Code, and that's great. But if you really want to get an overview of like everything that a function or everything that a library exposes, right now your best bet is to like open the d.ts file and like read through it. And that kind of sucks. So we have a documentation generator that you can just pass some TypeScript to and it'll pull out all the JS docs and the function signatures and all that kind of stuff and generate um, an output. Either like an HTML page, yeah, just in in your REPL, or sorry, in your terminal.
1: That's great. In the more vanilla JavaScript land, we have TypeDoc, which I've used on a few projects. Is this in any way comparable to yeah. what you're describing?
2: Yeah, it's pretty similar to that. Well, it's much faster than that because TypeDoc uses the TypeScript compiler to sort of try to do a lot of inference and an analysis. And we don't do this. We can sort of do a lot of static analysis using our Rust tooling, which means that you can generate documentation for large projects in a matter of, I don't know, hundreds of milliseconds.
1: Let's switch context a little bit to talking more grandiosely. You've discussed all these awesome things in the ecosystem, specifically Dino, and referred to cool improvements in the JavaScript ecosystem, such as structured clone being available in JavaScript web APIs, not just V8. Dino is part of this interesting recent shift in technologies from doing one thing and only one thing, the way traditional Node often described some of its areas, to we see what users need, let's do it all for them. And Node also funny enough, has recently started taking that strategy too. There's a Node test runner, there's built-in module loader and resolution support in Node. How do you see the ecosystem evolving as tools start to do more and more for the users?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually think that this is pretty funny because if you're in the JavaScript ecosystem, then this seems like a recent development that everybody is like doing this all-in-one things. But if you're in other ecosystems like Go or Rust, they've been doing this since the beginning. And like Rust has had a test runner and a linter and a formatter and a documentation generator and like compile support obviously type checking all that built in from day one and we're sort of just catching up in javascript it's it's sort of an inevitable thing like nobody wants to spend 3 hours setting up their formatter and linter and like they want to start using jsx and then they have to install a plugin for their linter and their formatter and their test runner and they're all separate plugins and they all need to be configured separately like why This is just stupid. We shouldn't do this. And I think a lot of this comes from, well, obviously JavaScript is a very large ecosystem, but also JavaScript is a pretty fragmented ecosystem. There's many different ways to run JavaScript. You can run it in the browser. You can run it on a server. You can run it in your CLI. And these groups previously didn't really coordinate very well browsers would do one thing and then Node decided they didn't like that and they did something else or Node did something and browsers decided they didn't like and they did something else. This is how we ended up with like six different streams, APIs and JavaScript. Or this even happens between like browsers and the standard JavaScript standards committee, right? Like readable stream and async iterator and Promises and board controller and like these are all things that could be much nicer integrated together if somebody had spent more time thinking about them. But this is not really a. I'm not blaming anyone individually here. This is just a really big space and it's difficult to coordinate. But we should have done a much better job here. And I think this is sort of catching up now. People are using JavaScript for more production use cases, not just on the browser as they were previously, but a lot more people are using JavaScript for server things too. And reliability is just something that is much more apparent, I guess. When something goes wrong on the server, your site is down for everyone, right? And you see the logs of your server having crashed. And if a page fails to load for one user on an old version of Safari, then first of all, you don't know that happened. Like, unless the user explicitly emails you and says the page isn't loading, you didn't even know this happened. And then if it did happen, there's like a thousand factors that could have been the reason, right? Like maybe they're behind a firewall, maybe... I don't know. There's a lot of things that are outside of your control. So people sort of, I think, didn't take reliability of, of sort of client-side browser things as seriously as people are taking reliability of server-side things now. And the shift to using more server-side JavaScript means that we need to make the ecosystem more reliable and more have stronger foundations. And part of this is just that we need to standardize on the tooling that we use. Because if there's, I don't know, 10 different linters and 10 different formatters, and you fix a bug in one of them, and that helps 10% of the ecosystem, and the other 90% are still, like, affected by this, then you're not making this reliability story much better. And I think we've sort of gone a long way here with having only a single type checker. Like, I'm very happy that TypeScript is is the only type checker, because that means if TypeScript improves something, the entire ecosystem improves, right? And it's not, like, nobody uses Flow. I know this may be hard to hear for some, but it's true. Flow is like a interesting project, and there's a lot of really smart people that have worked on it, but in reality, everybody uses TypeScript. Even at the scale of Meta, right? If there's like 10,000 engineers or or 20,000 engineers, probably it's less than that, but maybe it's 20,000 engineers at Meta that write flow code. That's nothing compared to the amount of people that write TypeScript, right? TypeScript has millions of developers using it every single day. And I don't know, improving type checking for some edge case in Flow has much, much less impact on sort of the reliability of the web than making that same fix in TypeScript. And as we sort of centralize to more tooling where everybody uses the same tooling, you get more of these like multiplier effects where you fix a bug in one place and then suddenly there's a lot more people that are that are sort of impacted by this bug fix. Yeah. I think just from that side, we'll see more more sort of convergence on on a single set of tooling but also it's just much nicer to use like I don't want to I don't want to set up 30 different config files so there's one tool that can give me all of these things working together with no config at all yeah why not use it playing devil's advocate though one of the
1: advantages perhaps of having many different tools is that they compete with each other they can each iteratively explore new ideas For example, TSLint, the old TypeScript linter, which has been years since killed, was able to do some really nice things around performance that are currently not possible to do in ESLint or with TypeScript ESLint. So do you worry about, for example, having a single linter or a single type checker slowing down a bit?
2: I don't think so, no. It's obviously important that these tools are maintained in such a way, like they can't be closed source tools that don't accept open contributions because people need to be able to improve these things. And I think there's no fundamental reason why it is not possible to make, I don't know, ESLint with TypeScript just as fast as TS Lint is. And there's obviously like organizational or architectural reasons that make this more difficult in the short term. But in the long term, this is not an unsurmountable problem. Like if somebody discovers there's a way to improve the performance of Node and this requires some refactors, they go do those refactors and then node is faster. And then everybody everybody's happy, right? And if your solution is node is slow, so instead of making node faster, we're gonna just do everything exactly the same as node, but we're gonna start from scratch and have a bunch of other bugs, right? Like we're sacrificing reliability for performance effectively. Then this may work in the very short term, but in the long term, you're now maintaining two effectively identical projects. You have no differentiating factor, right? There's no reason why anybody would want to use your originally faster tool that has sacrificed reliability over using the original tool, which which has the reliability and it just doesn't have the performance yet, like you can always improve the performance of systems and you don't need to rewrite them from scratch like sometimes you obviously do need to rewrite because things sometimes it is too difficult for you to sort of improve something existing because there's too much tech debt that has accumulated but these are very rare cases, like rust had something pretty recently, well actually it's not that recent now, but Rust, like language server, used to be called uh, Rust LSP or something. I forget. But it was kind of terrible. It was slow. It was an official built-in tool from Rust. Everybody used it. But somebody came along and realized that the architecture that Rust LSP was built in was just, it was not great for sort of the performance that you expect from an LSP. So they started building a new language server for Rust called Rust Analyzer. And even though Rust Analyzer was not the sort of built-in tool, but was a third-party project, a lot of people started adopting Rust Analyzer. And just a couple of years ago, Rust Analyzer was adopted by the Rust Foundation as the standard language server and is now maintained within the Rust project and Rust LSP is deprecated. So I think there is definitely paths to sort of re-implement things if it's really necessary, even in the case of full integration. But yeah, I just don't think it's necessary in most cases. I think if you have tooling that is good and that is actively being improved and that Like people have feature requests for, and they can implement them themselves. Like I don't know, it's fine. Like we don't see this problem in Rust or in Go. That like I don't know, Clippy is Rust's linter is too slow or doesn't have enough lint rules or whatever, right? Because if people really want a lint rule, they contribute it, and then it'll be in the next Rust version. You just need to have good like project stewardship to make that possible.
1: That was my next question. How do you make this possible? It sounds like this is all predicated on project stewardship, funding through open-source models, and both of those are things that open-source folks have often struggled with in the past. How is it that you're
2: able to make this work? Yeah, that's a great question. I think because we're not directly trying to monetize our open-source product. Like The open-source product that we release is is the Dino CLI, and like by extension, Dino KV, and all the tooling that comes with it. But that's not where we make our money. We don't sell enterprise support, or we don't like unlock features in the CLI because you paid us something. But instead, we offer you a hosting product. And I think actually, enterprise support is is a good way that you can make open source sustainable. I think that's something that many projects have been successful with. Um, SQLite, for example, is another project that sort of uses enterprise support as as its way to monetize. And even though it's totally open source, and yeah. I think these are sort of two separate questions, though. If you have large organizations that use your software, they will inherently want to contribute that back to those tools because like, it is much more expensive to maintain a fork of, I don't know, Rust or of Node or of Go or of Dino than it is to just contribute back the, the improvements that you make for your own team internally back to the open source project. So as long as the structure is there for those people to be able to contribute them back Without like implications to licensing or implications to royalties or, or whatever, then do you need to have a system set up that makes this possible? You need to be able to you need to have like a code of conduct in place, have sort of people that oversee the projects and can and can make general decisions. But it works out pretty well. Rust is open source. Go is open source. JavaScript is open source. This is all true. At the vast
1: few minutes of the interview, I like to end with a few rapid fire questions about the person. Is that something you're ready for? Sure. Normally, I try to find interesting facts about people, but I couldn't find any for you. And I did try. Could you tell us a few interesting facts about you, please?
2: Sure. I used to have hair that was this long. Oh, you can't see that now. My my hair used to be like below my shoulders. Now it's short. That's sort of interesting, I guess. Totally not programming related, though. I don't have a driver's license. I like traveling by train. I really enjoy listening to like really loud music while I program. What is it about
1: riding on trains that you like so much?
2: I don't know. It's just great. Like you can sit down, you can have food. You don't have like somebody squashed up right next to you. You have like a power outlet that works. You can sort of see the landscape go by and you can do things like while you're traveling. Traveling is not like the lost day, especially like night trains where you can just get on a train at 10 in the evening and then you wake up in a completely different city. The next morning i think such a fun way to travel and obviously much much better environmentally also than flying and i think trains are great trains are great i know it's difficult in some parts of the world but if folks are ever in europe and i don't know just want to go take some trains it's great you should
1: is there a good entry-level train for someone who's only ever been in the states or canada or other that you would recommend we try out
2: yeah i think metro systems are maybe good starting points for people that are not super familiar with trains because like Even if you get lost, you haven't gone far, right? Um, Like maybe you've gone a couple kilometers, you'll still find your way back to your hotel. There's some really excellent metro systems in the world. Tokyo, I was just there for a month, a couple of weeks ago and excellent, absolutely excellent system. I highly recommend. London's pretty good too. Even the New York subway is, even though it sometimes can be kind of scary, but it's fine.
1: Yeah. When I lived in New York, my then partner and I, now spouse and I, went to Japan and coming back from Tokyo to New York City, the contrast and subway experience was distressing and disturbing. <laughs> it's so well done over there. Yeah. yeah. And then here we are with yeah, rats. Yeah. You no. Know? It really is. Yeah. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate hanging out, Luca, and I hope you have a great
2: day. Cheers. Yeah, you too.